Today's episode is brought to you by Slayhouse Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. What does that mean? What does that mean to bring us in? It's a uh, song. It's, yeah, it's it's song. Yeah. What song? Just just look at the teleprompter. It means to start the show. Yeah, yeah just look at the, the teleprompter. Show. Hi, this is Trevor from Slayhouse Publishing presents Bitlets. Fuck no. Fuck. Hey, this is Trevor from Slay Publishing Lit. Nope. Just read the prompter. Fuck it! I can't do it. I can't do it. You're gonna have to write it. Write it down. Just read the prompter. Fuck it! We'll do it live! This fucking thing sucks! Just read the prompter. Hey, this is Trevor from Slayhouse Publishing Presents Lit Bits. I'm back with Jeremy and Curtis, and today we are talking about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Hey, everybody. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the studio. Probably the last time we're going to let Trevor intro us. It's like Trevor does that and I blame I don't know what you're talking about. Everything's totally cool in here. (laughs) So yeah, so today we're going to talk about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but we're not going to talk about Sherlock Holmes. Um, I didn't read the script. (laughs) (laughs) I put a big graphic of Sherlock up on the screen because I thought this will enhance the dialogue. (laughs) These visuals will help. We're not talking about Sherlock today. Yeah, he was an interesting dude. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'll take a different picture. Doyle was a writer in the late 19th and early, I mean, really early, like 20th century. So he's, he's very much a Victorian author. Yeah. Um, he was a physician. He was not only the creator of Sherlock Holmes, but he was also a suspected, uh, he also wrote a lot of other stories and we're going to touch on some of those other genres that he wrote about today. Um, he was a suspected member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And when his wife passed away, he became a ardent uh, supporter and outspoken defendant of spiritualism and Mm. um, the supernatural. If you look at a lot of his fiction, I feel like that shouldn't surprise us at all, right? That he was a. a I think the surprise is that member. he was a he was a physician. That's I mean those those ideas in today's world seem very juxtaposed. But what we saw in looking at the Hermetic Order during the Dracula series is that there were a lot of mm-hmm. scientists and physicians mm-hmm. and people like in that occult kind of setting, and so that that idea seems totally um, off putting by today's standards. Well, and I, I think it was just very much like the moment du jour, right? Like like. You had a whole bunch of authors or a whole bunch of uh, just like creative people who were really invested in mysticism in the, that moment in time, right? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of pop culture, I think, of his moment, especially, um, is just kind of structured around these curiosities about the mystical world. Yeah. Um, I think there's a reason why, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has so much weird fiction that for example, borrows ideas from um, like hidden earth theories or inner earth theories or um, especially like Egyptology, which I think was this is the really this is big. the episode where we're going to gain all those QAnon supporters. <laughs> yeah, we want those guys. I don't know. Maybe. maybe no, no, we, we don't, don't want, want them. Want, yeah. But. But we're, we're going to get, get them. them. But That's we're going to get them. That's, That's how, how it works. works. Is this just the season of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn? Is that like what we're accidentally constructing here? Yeah, that was in, instead of, um, what was that song by that 70s group? The Season of... Uh, the Season of the Witch. Season of the Witch or whatever. Yeah, instead of that, they, the original title was the Season Order of the, the Hermetic Order of the Golden yeah, Dawn. Yeah, <laughs> the Season We should work course. on that. 
we should. Yeah. Yeah. There's an idea. Yeah. Workshop that song. I would like to, I don't want to go into any more of his biography than that. Um, because I do want us to do a deep dive. I think he'd be a very interesting character to do. I a deep do. Dive on. I, I actually just want to share one aspect of, Oh, we got the, the timer Arthur out. Conan Doyle's life that I, I feel like helps kind of explain how we set up our conversation about the three stories that we looked at for yeah. today. Yeah. Um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, I mean, in spite of, of also being, you know, the author of Sherlock Holmes, which is like the one detective everyone can name. Yeah. I mean, when you think of, of detectives. The others and, have French names, so that's why I can't uh, well, name them. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you sound ridiculous trying to say those. Uh, yeah. We're talking about... Uh, uh, Dupont. 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 <laughs> yeah. Dupont. Edgar Dupont. Allan Poe's Dupont. Dupont. Yeah. Um, yeah. was actually a, was nice. he was actually a predecessor of Sherlock Holmes. Like oh, yes. Conan Doyle, like yeah. based Sherlock Holmes on that. The, we'll get into that though. In the, in the, yeah, the deep dive. that's a, a yeah. different talk. Yeah. That's um, a different podcast. But I think like <laughs> it, it, in addition to doing, you know, Sherlock Holmes, he did a lot of this genre fiction. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was like real into fairies. Um, and this is a real thing. Like he believed fairies were real. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. And and was constantly... That's more surprising than finding out he was a doctor. <laughs> that, o- that, yeah. that obviously staged photograph that was that's really famous with the two yeah. girls took of the fairies, he actually went out and publicly defended that and said it was real. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He Ooh. he somebody sent him photographic proof of the existence of fairies. Damn. Uh, which was just I mean, it, it was just a doctored photograph. <laughs> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, like in today's age of the internet, uh anybody with like a halfway decent set of Photoshop skills could have convinced this guy of anything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Which is surprising because he was a doctor. And what's surprising to me about this, too, is that with his beliefs and with all of this genre of fiction that we're going to get into today, a lot of those Sherlock Holmes stories, to my memory, I haven't read them in a while, felt like they were they were setting themselves up for almost something supernatural, like the story. And then Sherlock's job was to come in and make it realistic right. and plausible and bring it back to make Earth. Make it a lot yeah. more implausible after... Uh, he comes back from the dead. I'm just saying. I mean, that is kind of that's a jump the shark kind of moment there. It really was a jump the shark. Jump the shark. I yeah. love that. Uh, oh man, that was a real episode of Happy Days. Yeah, and it yeah. was the best one. Yeah. Uh, the three stories we're going to look at today are the Captain of the Pole Star, Lot Two Forty Nine, and the Horror of the Heights. Um, and the source that I want to mention. Um, I know you use like the Oxford edition. Yeah, of... I, I have an. I mean, so all of his stuff is in the public domain, right? Yeah. So you can yeah. get you can get virtually anything you want, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, for pretty cheap. His yep. horror fiction shows up in a lot of like quote unquote best of um, like classic horror anthologies. Uh, chances are, if you have one, um, it it you you probably have a short story from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in it. Um, but my, you know, my personal copy was just the, the Oxford classics, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Gothic Tales, something like that. But you have a, a very special edition. Yeah, I'm really excited. It's called The Speckle Band, Lot 249, and Other Horrors, The Best Weird Fiction and Ghost Stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Annotated and Illustrated. And it's a very interesting copy. I mean, it's... Uh, the publisher is Old Style Tales, and uh, if you go on their website, um, they have a lot of titles where they've done this, and it's just really, really, really interesting. Yeah, I've <clears throat> actually seen some of um, their work 
you know, some of their additions. And I think that what's cool is first their additions are kind of like illustrated. Yeah. Um, and I think looking at illustrations that accompany a piece of work is always pretty fun. Oh yeah. Um, but the annotations are are also pretty thorough. There, there's some really interesting stuff in there. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So as usual, our goal isn't to describe the, I mean, we'll get into a little bit of the plots of the stories, but our goal isn't really to, to tell you the story. Yeah, we don't need to break down the in entire these thing. We're just going to talk about them and kind of talk about where Conan Doyle was coming from yeah. and kind of, kind of just talk about themes and talk about craft a little bit and, yeah. and so kind of go from there. We, we can start with Captain of the Pole Star. Um, which was, do you know when that was written? Do you have that in your show notes? Uh, I don't know. Um, damn it. I knew there was a reason I should have done the script more. (laughs) I do know that it was one of the, it's considered, yeah, I think it was the 1890s. I I do know it was one of the, uh, it's considered one of the, the penultimate or kind of the ultimate, um, not penultimate, because that means something totally different. Um, <laughs> the second to last. The second to last. Uh, <laughs> it was considered. <laughs> this was one of the penultimate. I'm just throwing words out that it's sound just, cool. It's just <laughs> almost perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was one of the. <laughs> what was that Do you mean called? like a precursor? No, 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 no. This is one of the the standard bearers for um, Victorian ghost stories. Oh this yeah, totally. The, this is a Victorian like, gothic tale. Yeah. For sure. But what's interesting about this? Well, I was reading in one of the many annotations is that when you do see the specter out on the ice, he doesn't go to old Victorian ghost story mm-hmm. tropes to no. describe the specter. And I think that uh, what stands out to me is just how his characters try to come up with an, a reasonable explana- explanation for what they saw, even though what they saw yeah. was to us, the reader, you know, fairly clearly um, unreal. Right. So let's tell them a little bit of the story. Do yeah. you want to jump so on that? Or? Captain of the Pole Star um, is about a, a captain of a ship called the Pole Star. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who who slowly goes crazy. And his, his crew is trying to determine whether or not they should mutiny to get this ship back to England before it is enclosed by the ice coming in um for like the winter season. Oh man. So that's yeah. one of the things I want to touch on really quickly is because um this is one of those stories that were very popular in that time, you know, and in, in this era England especially, but I think other countries too, but England especially was obsessed with finding a northwest passage, some way to cut mm-hmm. across the globe to bypass the the Americas yeah. mm-hmm. to get over to like Asia and Well, I think too we have to understand a lot of British industry and uh, understand that that the the Pole Star is a whaling ship, right? Yeah, they're not looking for that Northwest Passage. That's true. That they're, is true. They're yeah. really just looking for whales. Although we come to find that the captain is really there to find uh, what we presume to be the ghost of his dead fiance. Yeah, he. It's it's kind of ambiguous what he's. I mean, I th- it is ambiguous, but it also isn't ambiguous. Well, what makes it I think, amb- like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle gives us enough contextual clues throughout the story that we we've come to understand this dude's madness is not like because he's not hunting whales. It becomes yeah. pretty apparent early in the story. Like if this guy was just there to hunt whales, we'd be done and gone by now. Yeah, uh, he's really like out on the deck 
at night all the time with like his like looking glass and uh he's never even seen a whale he's yeah like, he's, he's never he's seen a whale not the guy yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're like draw me a picture of a whale captain and he's like uh that's a fucking camel you dope you know there's a whale there's a whale yeah. no sir that's a sea lion um yeah. whales usually don't breach on the ice like that uh, there's a whale no sir that's a polar bear that's that's a polar stop bear. pointing at my wife <laughs> that's our offensive joke for the episode there you go yeah <laughs> no so, yeah. I, I mean it's super clear like this guy is not on the level and it's because he's he's looking for something else and the rest of the crew is haunted by uh what they believe to be like a spectral woman and every time they they kind of see her they can't really tell is that a figure is that just some form of snow out on the ice are we hallucinating what's going on here um when it, i think that contextually for the reader it's very clear, like he's looking for his dead fiance. Yeah, but he's not haunted by her like he's done something wrong. He talks about her lovely eyes. No, it's all about, I think... And he's not she, on a true, like, suicide mission. I mean, he, he is. He's, like, he, inviting no, he death. He totally is. But, he, I mean, if he really was, he could just take a gun and shoot himself. No, 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 I no. Mean, but that's kind of the thing. So the doctor expresses that uh, he he fears that this dude is committing suicide. Yeah. Right. Like, like he's like, if I knew any better, you know, uh, I would probably put this guy under watch for suicide because right. he's acting real strange. Um, so <clears throat> I think the doctor, the narrator, um, whose voice is is, you know, we hear for the story. The story is told as a, a fragment of his of the the ship's doctor's uh, diary. Right. Um, and that framing device um, is closed at the end of the story by the i think the doctor's father um, yeah who talked to somebody else kind of offers a a closing note yep. uh, where he gives us the the background of the captain to explain that the captain was really in love with this woman this uh this lady who who died uh while he was away on a you know a ship he he missed her so her death is is also something that is is kind of questioned like how she died why she died when she died um, cause there's, 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 it's just, mis- it's, it's like a dark mysterious. malady is what they said. Yeah. Like a dark malady or whatever. Well, what I like about the annotated version that I have right here, um, is that he goes through the different causes of what could, how she could have died, you know? Yeah. And he says like disease is probably the most boring idea. Um, yeah, but also probably the, I don't know. It seems like it's the most likely one to me. Uh, there, there's some question yeah. of like, was there some darker force or something? And that's interesting. Well, and there's also those that that audience that believes that maybe the captain killed her, but then that doesn't jive with the no. way that she appears or she, haunts him. No, but but she dies because uh, because the 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 narrator's father at the very end tells us very exactly. distinctly she died while he was at sea. Yeah, so, exactly. So then other people think that maybe she was killed by a jealous lover. I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know, I don't know that that vibe. Did, did it I don't say know. a dark malady, or did you say? Yeah, it, no, yeah, yeah, it, it, it does. It says it, contextually okay. in the story that she passed away of some disease. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't so really I, go into detail I'm about not, it. I, when you say people, are are we talking about real people who read this story? Yeah, other readers, talking? like people. Oh, like, and readers are bad at reading. Yeah, they are really bad at reading. 
I'm just offering up alternative <laughs> viewpoints that at, we can discuss and dissect. No, I, I think it, you're all bad at she reading. Died of, she died of disease, and the real tragedy there is that he was missing for so much time. He spent his entire life, you know, whatever whatever this the whaling season was, he'd go off for months at a time during mm-hmm. this whaling season in order to to be the breadwinner. And then when he came back from one of these very long missions, she was dead. Yeah. And I think that's the tragedy right there. It doesn't need to be any more complex or any more sinister than that. It's just an unfortunate consequence of being away from your loved one. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really. It's so poignant. That is so poignant. It's bleak. Let's all take a moment it's of silence. Let's all, yeah, let's a all just sit here for a moment. This fictional character. <laughs> My head is well. They don't know a lot. So, so that's right the now. other thing too. They don't know a lot about this captain. Like he says early on in the story. Oh, um, very true. That when the the ship, like finally returns to dock or whatever, the captain just goes off, and he always just kind of comes back yeah. when they're about to go out and say, "Is my he, are my services?" And he needed? doesn't. He doesn't show up in any bars. Or yeah, anything. nobody he just knows. Funny, disappears, <clears throat> and he comes back. And and even the sh- the he the doctor even remarks like the ship's um, contractors, right? Because this is a, a a point in time. Yeah. If you're a captain of a ship, you don't own that ship. That ship is owned by whatever the whaling company is. Right. And the whaling company hires you. Uh, contracts you to take that ship out on the water, get a bunch of whales, bring it back successfully, right? Yeah. And the only reason they keep hiring him is because he comes back with whales. They're like, <laughs> you know, re- really, we don't know anything about him. There's no history on, on him. The only reason he keeps getting this job is because he's very competent at it. That's it. Which, to me, is the only, is one of the few kind of pushbacks. The different little... um snippets that Doyle drops throughout the story to to kind of hint at something darker or more mysterious going on with this with this captain and with his love of his life and mm-hmm. that is and this is the only way I would you know kind of offer that kind of pushback against it just being some kind of a simple somebody dies when you're away at at, at sea or something is is that idea that we are as readers expressly told just how mysterious this man is outside mm-hmm. of his life. So building up that mystery, I think, helps us to uh, kind of build up the mystery surrounding, you know, why does this woman die? And you probably are right. It probably is something yeah. as simple as... I'm not... So the questions that I have... She got the plague and, yeah. you know... Yeah. The, yeah. the questions I have as a reader, because Doyle is, the from the craft perspective, Yeah. right? I think what Doyle does really, really well is he holds back information and reveals it gradually through the story to maintain the sense of suspense that you don't know what's going on. Yep. And by the conclusion of the story, you should have a pretty clear picture of what the the actual arc of that story was. He does this really well in Sherlock Holmes, and he does it especially well in Lot 249. It is what makes his whole story work all of his stories as opposed work. to like big reveals yeah, yeah. like it's, big it's not like a big moments. astonishing shocking moment it's a deliberate suspension of your um you know gratification for knowing what what the story is really about right so yeah. we start with this mysterious captain who's being weird and people are like it's weird that we've been out here for so long we really should be getting back and even the captain is telling the doctor like I feel for you. Yeah. 
I, I really do believe that we should have gone back by now. And it, if it were up to me, uh, I would have taken you back. But it's not, you know, I, I like there's there's unsettled business. And he gets real mad at the doctor at weird times of the day, like yeah. what, like during conversations, because the doctor will come in and say, we've got Didn't a the doctor like show him a picture of his, his own? Shows him a picture of his own fiance and the captain is like, why the fuck would you show me that? You yeah. know, like, yeah. how dare you? Why would you do that? Why are you griefing me so hard? Yeah. How nice it must be for you to go back to your little fiance. Yeah, yeah. he flips yeah. out at him. And I, I'm kind of sitting here, like, as a reader, I, like, I feel like the mystery is right there in front of me. Because what you, Doyle you feel does like, is give You feel give like Chris us... Rock after being slapped? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't. What the uh, hell just uh, happened? Uh, uh, no, I don't, I don't think that's... It, well, maybe the character feels like that. I, I, as reader, don't. Because I think that... That's good. When, again, when we read it an Arthur Conan Doyle story, I think that, that we have to understand that Doyle is giving us all of the information we yep. need to, to solve the problem, to yeah. understand the narrative. Yep. And so when we look at all of the little needling things that uh, this doctor narrator kind of says, is like, you know, that was kind of fucking weird. Um, and he puts it in his journal like that's Doyle saying this is the clue to what this narrative is. Yeah. And what the narrative ultimately is, is a dude who is supremely lonely, who has lost his um, his his fiance, lost the thing that gave his life meaning and structure. And he does not know how to handle that. Right. And so, so he goes out. He finds this specter on the ice who is his, maybe his his fiance or whatever that entices him, eventually to run out onto the ice to embrace her, and he yeah. he dies right. His ultimately he dies of of I mean basically frostbite right. He yeah. succumbs to the cold with a grin on his face. With a grin on his face and a weird and, snow shape hovering over him. Well, and, and and not only that, but like <laughs> he was his arms are out like he was embracing someone. Oh, yeah. wow. So it's like it's clear, right? This is a love story gone tragically wrong. Yeah. yeah. And um and, and 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 the doctor even says, you know, when they when they bury him at sea, when they, you know, tie cannonballs to his legs and throw him over um, he says, you know, I hope that he finds the person he was trying to embrace down there. So and this is why I kind of, again, push against that idea of him just being suicidal, because I feel like as the captain, he would have had any time he could have just offed himself. I think he right. was resigned yeah. to his fate. I think well, he knew that he was going to die. I don't think he felt like she was going to kill him, but I felt like. It was his fate playing out like the way it needed to play out. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like for me, the whole the whole point of the story, right, is is like this dude was totally despondent. And the reason why he stayed out on the ice for so long, uh, the reason why he's pacing around at all hours of the night, the reason he's up in the, the crow's nest, you know, with his telescope or whatever, is because he's looking for that woman. He yeah. knows yeah. that there's this this woman specter on the ice. He believes that it must it must be his fiance following him out there. He needs to get with her for whatever reason because it's it's the thing that he lost, the thing he values yep. the most in his life, and yep. uh, and he begrudges the other people around him for having what he could have had. Do you remember that comment he makes to the doctor about like um, 
when they are starting to head back and he's like, we'll be with our, our beloved soon or something like that. Like, yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah. 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 So my whole, you know, my whole point is in reading this story, I, I think the, there's only one reading for me. There's only one interpretation of this. And, and it, it's not like, Oh, is there some, you know, like dark force or something? No, man, he was just sad. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm, I'm intrigued and I don't want to spend a lot of time cause I think we could go way down a tangent on this, but I'm intrigued by how horror and how genre fiction uses its setting to, um, to kind of provide that bleakness. So they're, they're, they're up there in the Arctic mm-hmm. ocean and the, obviously that's a bleak enough setting, but then you think about like how that's, that was kind of a, a undiscovered country for them. And then this, oh, sure, you know, yeah. all, uh, always dealing with death. I mean, there are so many layers on that. It, it's a very different, it, it, when we're, we're talking about a 19th century story, yeah. right? A, a turn of the century story. This is a very different world than the world where we can see exactly where the dragons should be because of Google Maps. You know, like, yeah. it's taken away a lot of that mystery of the world in some ways. And I think that, for the most part, 19th century horror and especially like turn of the century horror was really invested in like the frontier space that was left yeah i think that this is one of the reasons why uh horror of the heights is such an interesting story because this is a a story that um ostensibly is about discovering or rediscovering um another frontier for mankind Right. Yeah. By the end of the 19th century, as we come into the 20th century, most of those quote unquote great frontiers have been settled. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the West has been one. The United States is now, a, a, you know, starting to become a major um, economic force. Um, by the, the 20th century, you know, the United States had pretty much acquired all of the land it was going to acquire, except yeah. for like Hawaii and Alaska. I was going to say islands are the only thing left right. that, yeah. Right. So that, that westward expansion has been done. The tale of the West has been told, you know, yeah. like, like there, this, this frontier mentality of, uh, the imperial power, you know, constantly going out to these foreign spaces and conquering them. Um, has really kind of come to a close, and now we're we're stepping into a, an entirely new century, and so I think that's one of the reasons why we see so much fiction around this time that is very intensely focused on what is the next frontier. There's a lot of these. Like, I don't think it's just this time, though. I mean, we're still seeing it to this day. Oh, like, I, sure. I, like I think we just pushed the boundary of where that frontier is. We've, yeah, we've just changed the boundary. I mean, Jules Verne had twenty thousand leagues under the sea. I mean, and and really the you know the oceans could be a, a frontier that we yeah. haven't explored, which there. was a nineteenth century. Story. And now we've right. got the uh, the James Webb Telescope out there, right. a million yeah. miles I, away I mean, from the. And now we a lot of horror is set in space because yeah, again I, that's the next frontier. I think right. the next front the frontier has just shifted. Right. Yeah. yeah. We're, we are seeing a resurgence in a lot of stories that are really interested in the deep sea. Right. Right. I, I think con- like the consciousness especially surrounding stories like the Titanic, right? That people are so obsessed with. Um, but I also think like space, space has become the, the new frontier. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now, do, now do your, yeah, yeah. That yeah. is Star Trek. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, now do your best William Shatner. And back then it was just rockets going to the moon. 
I mean, think yeah. about how far we've come since then. Yeah, even. I, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a total, I think, tonal shift in like science fiction from the '60s yeah. as we, you know, we push these. New Not to mention, you know, space. Space is the, the new frontier, frontier, but also <laughs> we're also moving into uh, virtual space. You know, oh we're, yeah, we're creating, absolutely. We're creating virtual worlds, and, and I think that this has become more and more of a preoccupation um, in certain genres. You know, the '80s was really big with exploring cyberspace as mm-hmm. right. you know the idea of this virtual virtual and unconquered frontier and what is that virtual space going to so look we like? just we create new frontiers if we don't oh, yeah, if we don't constantly. have any more of yeah. them do we i mean what is fiction but a new frontier to kind of conquer right i guess with that i guess maybe that is the next door i mean i i know we you know lot 249 came next in my little you know, introduction, I but I, I, I feel like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, but not but, because I don't uh, want to come back to it, but I, I think yeah. that when we talk the segue about works better going on yeah, to haunt the be, haunt of the because heights, what we talk about, you know, Doyle, I think, I think we have to understand his cultural moment, but we also kind of have to understand like, again, craft, craft wise, he does some brilliant stuff. Yeah. Horror of the Heights, for example, is a story that's, that's told, from like a, a journal fragment, right? Right. Like, like a bloody notebook or something that somebody just picks up somewhere. Yeah. Um, and it, it turns out there's this aviator, right, who is talking about some mystery that happened with other aviators. And they, they were flying up um, uh, into the air and then like one of them crashed unceremoniously. Another guy returns, lands his, lands his plane, but his head is missing. Um, and this guy basically discovers that there's what he <laughs> calls an trick. air jungle, yeah. right? Um, this, this like, there's like uh, huge jellyfish flowing. Yeah. Past, past 30,000 feet in the air. You know, the whole point is like when you get past a certain altitude, you, you run into another earth that is just like orbiting oh up, overhead around us. Yeah, and there are like these weird, <laughs> cool. like these weird, almost Lovecrafty, pre-Lovecraft, pre-Lovecraft, uh, but almost these Lovecraftian monsters that are like all beaks and and bird feathers and and tentacles that, you know, come chasing after him. The um, editor remarks in in this copy that I have that Lovecraft probably had this story in his like library that inspired oh, I, him. You know, absolutely, <laughs> Lovecraft stole from everybody. Yeah, on uh, the. Mar- Super Mario Odyssey video game. Uh-huh. There's a there's a level where you're like above the clouds and you're fighting an octopus that's floating around and he's all like oh yeah he's like a charlatan though he's like all dressed up all pretentiously with yeah, curly yeah. Uh, wig on that's and stuff. That's Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, that's that's yeah. basically that's right out of Doyle. I don't necessarily I like, know that these Japanese programmers were like Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> I mean, maybe I don't but know. But I also Th- think like uh, but. Arthur Conan Doyle popularized a lot of these ideas, yeah. you know, and, and, and when we think of, of I mean, he like, wrote the lost world. That was right. Nice <laughs> exactly. Which is, which is, uh, and, and Jules Verne was, was doing, um, what was it? The, the journey to the center of the earth, which yeah. was all this yeah. hollow earth theory kind of stuff, which was really popular at Welcome the time. Welcome to our QAnon listeners. <laughs> oh, when I was—they no, uh, don't want you here. They're flat earthers. They're flat earthers. That right? Yes. Yeah. 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 In order to be a hollow, the Earth would still have to be round. <laughs> oh, I know. Coming back, <laughs> Conan Doyle. I, I mean, so Conan Doyle again. I think that Horror of the Heights. What what makes the Horror of the Heights a novel story is just that. Um, for the one, it, it again presents this like new frontier for mankind, right? 
And, um, and simultaneously, I think he does the same thing he always kind of does where he hides from us all of the information that we need yeah. to make total sense of the situation until the very end where we can finally go back and piece together the entirety of the narrative. He keeps that suspense going really, really, really well. Yeah. The I other agree. thing that I think Conan Doyle does really interesting in like lot 249 Mm -hmm. um is he presents to us you know not just the cultural moment which was really obsessed with like egyptology and really just a lot of like um looking at foreign cultures and and kind of like a curiosity of um like old ancient cultures ancient mythologies that sort of thing i feel like conan doyle kind of represents to us another if you will, another frontier and that frontier being the human past, you know, like the things that we have lost sight of because we've forgotten about them. Right. Because our, our memory is so short and, um, our species, which isn't necessarily very long lived, but our species has been around for however many tens of thousands of years. Yeah. And um, and there's a lot of history that we've kind of lost. And so I think that as many of his other writers, his other researchers, are uncovering more and more stories of the human past, he's looking at those human past or that human past and, and um, kind of using it as a vehicle to examine the human present, right? The people that we are. What I look at in Captain of the Pole Star... What I love about that story is that ultimately it is a love story. Yeah. It is a story about a man who does not know how to make sense of his life without his life's partner. Yeah. yeah. And I think that what works for me about Lot 249 is that this is ultimately a story of of the of revenge, of the pettiness of humankind. And what happens when a human being um comes into uh, acquaintance with a power he he does not understand but um refuses not to use right mm-hmm. so jeremy share with us what what is lot 249 just so that our our listeners can understand what the the story synopsis is sure lot 249 is a, like Trevor said, it's it's a story focused around Egyptology, and I can understand. Um, I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying about lost civilizations and and exploring the kind of past as this new frontier. I mean, Egypt has been, and I can understand Britain's fascination with Egypt during mm-hmm. this cultural moment. Yeah. Um, and really, even are still. I mean, like the I, mummy is only twenty. Like the Brendan Fraser mummy well, movies I, are only like twenty something years I old. Think I even mean, even more yeah. than that. I, we also have to understand, like religiously speaking egypt holds a lot of importance because egypt and the middle east are are commonly heralded as like the birthplace of humanity right birthplace of of yeah what i think fascinates me about english or about egypt not english (laughs) about (laughs) egypt is um you know we know of these other we know of like babylon we know of these sumeria we know of these other cultures out there that have existed but egypt is one of those where we can go to this day and see monuments oh, erected sure. where this stuff had taken place well, and, in a completely different and world our, and our oldest existing uh human literatures come yes. from egypt right uh, i mean we we still have 
uh, actual like English or or, or uh, Egyptian, um, you know, tablets, Egyptian. Um, we have people who are understanding papyrus. what the hieroglyphs are, are right. discussing, what they're mm-hmm. saying. They're translating yeah. them. And like I mean, every year, there's a news story about something that got yeah. something that was found. And and, and yeah. it's really it's and religiously every speaking, time. I mean, when we talk, I know that that uh, you know Israel is uh, the 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 home of the Jewish people, right? But mm-hmm. much much of um, the stories that that we read from like the Bible or something like that are set in Egypt. Yeah. And, and we should definitely understand Egypt uh, was, was like covered a lot more ground. It was a much larger kingdom, I think um, in the time that, you know, these Bible stories take place, but well, and, and it's that, that idea, but even, even Egypt holds that idea of like a lost culture, because I mean, one of the early stories, like you mentioned, you know, when people think of like Bible stories, they think of the Israelites being, you know, enslaved or whatever. And, and, Exodus yeah. and and getting gaining their freedom from Egypt, but people forget, you know, like Christ was as a young child was taken out of of Nazarene out of out of Israel, yeah. and his parents brought him to save him to Egypt, and then the story jumps to him being like eleven years old, and they don't realize that he probably got a lot of education. And what's significant about that is that. Um, there was the library at Alexandria there, Alexandria, Alexandria, Alexandria. there in Egypt. Um, all of that's been lost, but it's been rumored that this library had all of the collections from everything written around that, you know, the world yeah. of that time. And that's, I don't a, know how literate Jesus was. I mean, I don't know either. It's, but well, no, they say he was really literate because he, he studied with, uh, oh, he, rabbis. He, yeah, and, that's true. He studied yeah. with the, the Pharisees. Um, but it's it's just phenomenal to me the the kind of culture that exists in there with Egypt. What Lot two forty nine is is it's a short story um, with a young university student named Bellingham who acquires this mummy, and he uses this mummy to gain revenge for the people he thinks has wronged him. Mm-hmm. Author Conan Doyle um, uses this idea of the mummy. In fact, what he wrote here in Lot two forty nine and what Bram Stoker wrote in the oh let me find it here um the jewel oh what is the name of it oh shit i can't find it why can't i not find anything when i want to read it um, <laughs> you got to highlight because you're on the spot i got i know i do i got to highlight stuff hurry um, up <laughs> oh no oh the show notes <laughs> <laughs> uh shit. the jewel of the seven stars and uh this other story called uh toth or the ring of toth a uh, thoth yeah. something it like that. Be, it might be Toth. It but, might be Toth, but, but it's spelled uh, T-H-O-T-H. It's spelled T-H-O-T-H. Which is a very, oh my gosh, that's like a super popular name. Thoth? And like, that sounds like you're saying sauce and you it, have a it, list. It's like any It's like race car. It's one of those, you know, same backwards and forwards. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> a palindrome. Palindrome. Oh, pal- yeah, 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 yeah. Which is not a palindrome. Sorry. Palindrome is not a palindrome. No. That sounds and like there's... To be, be a lot cooler if it was. Neither is Thoth. Thoth. Toth, Thoth is not a palindrome. Yeah, you're right. It's not a palindrome. Maybe in sound, but... It's a sound soundindrome? I don't know. <laughs> off, um, off the rails. But, yeah, totally off the rails. Um, but what these Great. these works did, Stoker with, with The Jewel of the Seven Stars and uh, Lot 249 by Doyle, these kind of gave us the... Um, the mummy as as a cult kind of creature it really popularized very much because the, other, before then they were just kind of like these kind of comical kind of creatures or these oddities or I something don't even, i don't even know that they i, I mean I, I can't say they 
didn't exist in pop culture, but but they weren't I popularized. Don't, I don't right. know that they were very popular in pop culture. No, I don't think they were either. And I, I think that the idea of mummies we have today were really kind of formed by two figures. The yeah. the first being um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The second being Boris Karloff. Yeah, well, in Boris Karloff's, and in fact, that whole story from that Boris Karloff movie was lifted from the Jewel of the Seven Stars. Right. So that's that's where all of that comes yeah. from. So so yeah, we can trace it all back to Doyle and Stoker on this. Yeah. Um, At the end of the day, so wrapping this up. Yeah, let's wrap because, it up because I do think that it's time to wrap up. Yeah. Um, I, I think the reason why we come back to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, isn't necessarily because, or just because. Um, these stories are fun and, and kooky, you know, sometimes I think that they've aged a little poorly. You know, I, I think our, our desire for like Egyptology has really changed, right? Yeah. Like our, the way that, that we represent culture has changed a whole lot. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that if someone wrote lot 249 today, it would be as culturally sensitive, right? Right. Um, or, 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 or rather as culturally insensitive, because I, I think that, you know, kind of the fetishization of Egypt in this sense wouldn't sit too well. Which is interesting, given, too, that he's also exploring the nature of what it means to be a British male. Oh, and so sure. there's a lot of homoerotic yeah. and sexual kind of yeah, undertones yeah. throughout the story. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, all of that being said, I think we come back to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and and I think that people should go read Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Agreed. because he is a master class, not just in writing really solid prose, the kind of voice that uh, really stands on its own, um, but because from a structural perspective, he knows how to give the reader just enough information yep. to keep pulling them along until the the conclusion the denouement of the story he knows how to frame that frame that story that that very continuous much so. suspension of um of uh, you know that that gratification right of like solving the mystery or understanding the story you know the the building and maintenance of suspense I think is what makes him such an incredibly effective writer. Not only that, but he's tackling, these stories are all multi-layered. I mean, he's yeah. tackling a multitude of themes and these stories become iconic representations of that genre that he's tackling. Right. There is a, a real human story, I think, to, yep. to each of these. And I think that rather unfortunately, as readers, um, I think we get hung up on the tropes, right? We, we yeah. get hung up on the the spooky mummy or we get hung up on the, the fact that there's like, you know, this... Horror is just uh, a vehicle, people. Horror yeah, is just a vehicle. This ghost on the ice. Like, it, it's not about the ghost. It's not. It's right. about it's about the loss, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not about the, the, the fucking mummy. It's about an abuse of power, right? And, and the fearfulness, I think, that comes from... A power abused. Yeah, let the movies right. deal with all the, the mummies. You know, yeah, like, you the know, mummy is cool. Tom Cruise in the movie can scream at mummies all he wants. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <Tom laughs> we Cruise. see. We gotta watch that trailer with the, <laughs> the, the the trailer that they dropped for Tom Cruise's The Mummy, where they forgot to put any of the 
<laughs> any of like the music in so it's just him screaming oh wow <laughs> did somebody doctor it that way or no they it, released was... it without any of the sound like the production company on accident accidentally released two tra- <laughs> two theaters a trailer with none of the music or, or musical <laughs> score or sound effects so it's just audio did it go viral Oh yeah. Then it wasn't. It wasn't an accident. I bet then. Oh, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. It's fucking hilarious. I want to take. Awesome. I just want to take a couple of minutes right before we end here um, to say thank you again to our Wayne Howard Studio producers. Uh, you guys always do right by us and are always great and gracious. I want to thank our listeners. I want to thank our Patreon supporters. If you, um, we have a lot of, of content coming to Patreon, so we're really building that up. So, and we have some merchandise that's available depending on the tiers. So uh, yeah. we're going to be at StokerCon. We have a lot of titles just, coming out. Just a couple of weeks from now. Just a couple of weeks from now. We are so excited about yeah. this. Um, we uh, we have a lot of projects coming out, and we're, we're really excited about everything that we're doing. And we um, just want to say thank you to everybody. Um, and thank you to the the authors that have signed with us and have, you know, published their short stories in our, our anthology and just everyone who reaches out to us. We just love the, the support and we want to keep bringing you guys uh, quality uh, entertainment. We just I just wanted to yeah. say thank you. And before uh, Curtis plays us out with our outro. Plays us out. Please, what is? No, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? You've already done the joke. You've already done the joke. Done the joke. Done the joke. <laughs> Before Curtis plays us out, um, I do want to. Fuck wanna... you! <laughs> <laughs> that is not the vibe I was going for. That <laughs> I was gonna say, uh, maybe share a review with us. Uh, yeah. You know, if you share a review on Spotify or share a review on Apple. Um, Apple Podcasts. That Email really... us at editor at slayhouse.com. Yeah, but but the reviews really help yeah. our algorithms and help people find us. Um, you you can help us out immensely just by dropping us a Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, patreon.com slash Wayne Howard if you want to check out what else is going on in Wayne Howard Studios. Yeah.